What up? Welcome to Homegrown Hustle, where local brilliance takes the center stage. I'm your host, Matt Eichmann. Together, we're about to embark on an inspiring journey. Our community thrives on the wisdom of insightful leaders that are right here in our backyard. And we're bringing their expertise to your ears. Whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur or simply seeking inspiration, this podcast is your guide. Join us every week in celebrating innovation, guidance, and the power to inspire greatness. Let's explore the stories that shape our local business landscape, and together, let's ignite the spark of excellence. What's up? It's Matt Eichmann on the Homegrown Hustle. I'm here with Mike Kading, the CEO of Norhart. Here, local to Forest Lake, busy man, a lot of moving parts going on in his life, so I'm just really grateful I'm on here today. How are you doing here today, Mike? Oh, I'm doing doing super well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I can't wait to get started here. So I'm sure a lot of people who are listening know who you are, but for those who might be listening that don't know who you are, could you give us a little bit of a background story on kind of who you are? What's gotten you to where you're at now? Yeah, so I'm the CEO of Norhart, as you mentioned. And as a company, we design, build, and rent apartments. But we're really focused on driving down the cost of construction. We've been achieving about a 20 to 30% reduction in those costs. And we believe that someday we can get to a 50% reduction. But imagine what that means. That means someday your rent or your mortgage payment could be half. And that's our dream is really to solve housing affordability in America. My dad started this business and uh, we, in fact, we lost everything growing up when I was a kid. My dad was actually kidnapped in Peru and uh, we kind of eat back our life out of all of that. And then my dad built up this small business and I went off to school and I knew one thing. The one thing I knew is that I did not want to join the family business. And the reason that was is that I didn't want people to think it was given to me, right? I really wrestled with my own ego. But what I realized deep down is that I wanted to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact in the world. And I could help my dad and work with my dad take this small business to a whole nother level. So jumped in with my dad and we, we grew the business the first couple of years working together. It was great. And then one day he passed away. And uh, that changed my life forever and also set us on a whole new trajectory where in the last few years we've been doubling in size more or less every year. That's amazing. That type of growth is what a lot of business owners dream of. And, and being that it's a family-owned business, like growing at scale like that is super impressive. Is there something that you would attribute that growth to? Yeah, the key is the economics of it. So we're developing typically, not always, but typically we can achieve that 20 to 30% reduction in cost. So compared to the value of a building, let's say it's worth $100 million, our cost might be $75 million. But here's the magic. Banks are typically willing to lend at 75% or $75 million. So I'm actually not limited typically by capital. Now that has changed in the last year with rising interest Mm. rates, and we've got ways that we're working beyond that. But historically, we have not been limited 
by access to capital, we've been primarily limited by the rate at which we can find, hire, and attract incredible people to build the right infrastructure. Hmm. Interesting. So I have so many questions about this, yeah. first of all. So how do you drive the cost of production down? Like, how do you drive that cost 20 to 30% below what everybody else is delivering? Yeah, so if you look at other industries like manufacturing, over the past 60 years, they've improved labor productivity by 760%. During that same time period, construction has done virtually nothing at just 10%. It's awful. And so at a very simple level, we're taking the lessons learned from these other industries and applying it into our own. In fact, we have a partnership with Toyota, which invented a lot of the techniques that manufacturers use to drive down costs. Now, if you look at the world of construction, if a construction company were to produce a car, you'd have a different company installing the wheel, a different company installing the windshield, a different company installing the door. Because construction companies tend to have a bunch of different subcontractors for different companies they come to work together on one project. Now, of course, that, that window company that's installing it for the car, they would call you up and say, hey, I got stuck on another project. I can't get out to your mm. site for another two weeks. Your line would be shut down. And see, the world of manufacturing looks at us and says, you guys are crazy. Yeah. Why the heck would you do it that way? And our response is, what's well, the way we've always have done it? Right? And that's oh, I hate that. Yes, that's like one of my least favorite things. And it, but when I hear it, I I hear opportunity, and it sounds like yeah. that's kind of what you got to. Exactly. Right? So we bring all the work under one roof, and once we wow. do that, we can start applying techniques and technologies that other people typically can't. And this is going to sound revolutionary, believe it or not. But one of those techniques is the assembly line. I know. Crazy, <laughs> right? I think I've heard of it. <laughs> but you can't, you look at a building, you can't take a building and drive it down the line. But what you can do is you can take the person and move them through the building. So our goal right now, although we're not perfect, the goal is that every five hours, our teams shift through the building by one unit, more or less. And if you look at the end of our building, every five hours, that we then have a new apartment unit completed. And that one technique, when done well, which is hard to execute on, but when yeah. done well, can take a 15-month project and drive it down to nine. And see, it's techniques like that. We've, there's 10,000 little things that when applied to the construction process, you can start seeing meaningful improvement. Yeah, you're removing all the inefficiency, which is lack of time it's, or ineffective use of time. And you, yes. because there's like a thinking component to it and there's the task being completed, right? But when the task becomes doing this within five hours, now the target's smaller and you completely reframe the whole problem of building. It's fascinating. So my grandfather worked in developing really large buildings. So he worked on, there's some large high rises down there in Minneapolis, kind of part of the skyline, the ones with all the different colored windows. He was essentially 
the main contractor and he managed the entire build there. He managed Paisley Park, wow. a lot of really large schools and stuff. Wow. So that whole, like I kind of grew up around that world and I, I actually worked on site with him at a few of the schools and there's like, there's so much inefficiency there, right? Because the time is blocked off with this big concept and everybody accounts for a little bit of time, a little bit of time. And now you take what can be done in nine months with extreme laser focus and you need a six month cushion to help you accomplish it. So all that cushion, like the economics of it for them is I have a 15 month job or a 12 month job. I don't want to get done in nine months. Because then I like potentially, right? So you control the entire, like the entire process from beginning to end, like every single little nuance you have kind of choreographed. Absolutely. Even down to things like wall wow. panel manufacturing, precast concrete, the large beams and columns that go into buildings. We have an engineering and architecture team, which is actually a critical part to driving down costs. Because again, engineer. Each one of these separate teams are in it for themselves. Nothing wrong with that mm -hmm. as companies. But if your plumbing contractor is in it for themselves, they're going to add that time on each end. They want the entire space clear so that mm -hmm. their work is done well. And if another trade is in, a way, in the way, I've seen this before, but they will rip out the work of the other trade because they want to make a statement that you don't get in my way so my profitability is maximized. Mm. Right? It's that sort of problems that happen but once you bring it all together you start to see some major success so have you had to find ways to work around that human component to all the different parts or, or stations of the build and ensuring everyone works well together is there a strategy that you have to ensuring the people doing this work is are working the most efficiently or yeah, effectively it, maybe it actually it actually ties to the most important lesson that i've ever learned and certainly there's systems and infrastructure that you have to get in place. And that's a huge struggle. I don't want to undermine that. Mm -hmm. But the most fundamental thing is to hire the very best people. And when I say the best, I truly mean the best. We will fly people in from other states to have them work during the week and fly them home on the weekend because they're best in the nation at what they do. We have uh, someone that in 2007, Steve Jobs gets on stage and announces to the world for the very first time the iPhone. Steve Jobs walks off stage after his presentation, and on that same stage, following Steve Jobs, one of our employees walks on that stage to talk wow. to that same audience. It's that kind of caliber of people. And when you bring that caliber together, they change things. They make things happen that you didn't know could even be possible. They unlock doors that were shut before they got there. And so you bring in this amazing team, but the number one thing I hear from people, they say, Mike, that sounds expensive. And the mm. truth is, it is. Probably, yeah. When you look at it on a cost per person basis. But what most people fail to understand is that the best people outperform the average by two to five to 10 times as much. Mm. And so instead of looking at it on a cost per person basis, if you look at it on a cost per unit produced, the best people are actually your least expensive 
Mm. And so people feel they can't afford to hire the best. My response is simply you can't afford not to. That's deep. That's a lot you said right there to unpack. <laughs> but essentially, you can't really just look at, at your employees like it's just a headcount, right? The quality of those employees and understanding the output of really, really high caliber employee. It takes a lot of depth of thought to get to that. How did you... Like, has that just always been part of your ethos or is that something that you've kind of learned through the process of transitioning from it being your father's company into what you're growing today? I wish I had known quite a few things before I got started. The the honest answer is you learn along the way because you fail, Mm. right? Try, Mm -hmm. fail, try, fail, try, fail. I think a lot of people are afraid of failure, but it really is just part of the process. So for us, there was a point at which we hired a lot of temp laborers. Our thinking was, just get people in the door. Like, how hard this mm. can, can this be? I, I didn't understand the difference in caliber of people. And it was terrible. It was a disaster. Uh, <laughs> it was not good at all. And a really wise person came beside me. I have lots of great mentors and coaches that I work with on a regular basis said, Mike, you're an idiot. Like you're screwing this up. <laughs> you have to look at this completely differently. And so we went and I did a deep dive on the entire company and we laid off more than half of everyone and we rehired on new team members. Mm. And one of the big challenges, especially in the world of construction, is how do you find good quality people? What we ended up doing, we're about a 100-person company at this time, and we ended up hiring on about a dozen recruiters, which is insane. We could go into that too, the whole story there. But the power behind that is now we had a team that could go survey the entire Minnesota market for all of the different qualified people for all the different roles, start to identify who they were, who the best people in the industry were. And we started building out an incredible pipeline. We went from accepting about 50% of applicants, and frankly, a higher with the temp labor, is if you could breathe, we'd accept you to a point now where we accept 0.4% of people interested to work here. Give you some perspective, Mm. Harvard is at 4%. So we're incredibly selective and we do a lot through that process and that selection process. But in doing that, the caliber of people, freaking amazing. I was on site again yesterday and it just, they're just good quality people they care, they're passionate, they're brilliant, they're changing the industry. And when you get that kind of people together, it is magic. Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps just hearing you talk about it. So you said you were on site yesterday. You currently have a project or multiple projects going on right now. What's your day-to-day look like right now, I guess? Yeah, so it's to day-to-day right now, I'm spending a lot of time with investors. We've Never had to raise capital in the past. We kind of alluded to this earlier. But with the rise of interest rates means that banks are providing less Mm -hmm. of the total value of the project. They went from 75% down to 65, 60, or 50. And now we're having to bring in uh, capital to bridge some of that gap. And so meeting a lot with investors right now. But the the other great part is just getting to spend time with the team. So being on site yesterday, Mm -hmm. touring the facility, we have projects lined up just kind of back to back to back to keep our teams moving. Our latest project is Norhart Oakdale. Honestly, it's one of the, I, 
this is biased now, so take it. <laughs> I would say it's probably one of the top 10 communities in our state. There's a brand new transit line that stops right at its front door. We have a restaurant, coffee shop. The main entry is the entire width of the building, 22 feet high. We've got thousands of square feet of amenity space. We have a rooftop patio and grill. We have uh, penthouse suites where local celebrities are literally looking at moving in right now. It's just a cut above the rest. It's an amazing facility. How many total units are, are there? I think it's 355. 355. How long was that project from start to finish? To Yeah, it's a little bit tricky because where do you measure it? But yeah, if true. you want the full entire range, it's about a year and a half. For any one team going through the, the project, it's maybe like 12 months. Okay. I mean, that's amazing that you can put anything together that fast. That fascinating. So... Well, we want to make it a lot faster. Our dream is to get that five-hour window down to one, but it's so hard. <laughs> so I have so many questions. This one, I think, is, could be we can go some places with it. So are there people that are telling you, Mike, what the heck are you doing? There's no way that's going to work. Has that been something you've had to fight, or are people just really embracing and buying into kind of that? Because I'm gathering that you're a visionary, and sometimes my experience with visionaries is they're not always – like understood and their message doesn't just, everyone just buys in right away. Have you had a similar experience? All the time. Oh, oh. all the time. I How mean, do you handle that? There's so many good people that are very supportive, but yeah, it's, if you're trying to change an industry, like you have to be able to communicate that message well. And then you, you got to bring people alongside you that want to also mm. carry that vision. If you don't do that, you're going to struggle because you can't do anything great without people all coming together, and making it happen. I remember, you know, not long after my dad, I was really wrestling, honestly, like, am I good enough? And I actually do this. And after my dad passed away, we were working on this new project actually in Blaine, not far from where we're at. And the city there really didn't believe in me. And in, in all fairness, like I wouldn't have believed in me. Like I, they have very legitimate yeah. reasons to do that. I wasn't very... I didn't quite know how to work with cities yet and didn't have the track uh, record. Yeah. I didn't have a track record. And then during the construction, we had problems. And so they actually shut me down twice and very legitimately, it was not like any negative stuff, but the second time they shut me down, they pulled me aside and, and it brought me to the city offices and I'll never forget this. They looked me in the eye and said, Mike, you're not good enough. You can't mm. do this. You have to hire someone that can manage this project for you. And uh, they wouldn't let me start again unless I hired that person. It was incredibly stressful. We found someone in just three days so that I didn't have to stop the crew. But in doing so, we, you know, that's the worst way to hire. We talked about good ways to hire. That's a terrible way to hire someone. So behind the scenes, we were doing a lot of the work trying to make things happen. I remember about a month and a half or so before we were supposed to open, we had a water main that was buried 15 feet in the ground. It was 1,000 feet long, and we did a pressure test on it to test that there were no leaks. And this test is incredibly sensitive, and it could pick up that we had a pinhole water leak somewhere in this huge mm. pipe. <laughs> and my excavator had no desire to stay inside. He wanted to get out of there. So I was out, you know, from very early in the morning to late at night, day in and day out, in my nice clothes out there with my hands shoveling, 
looking for this league. It was awful for weeks. We eventually found the league. And a few days before we were supposed to open, city staff came out and said, dude, there's no way you're opening. Yeah, I know you got families that are about to you know, move in. I, it's your, your problem to figure out what you're going to do, mm-hmm. but you can't open this building. And uh, we worked, I was oh, so stressful because I didn't know what to do with these families. So we worked through the night for multiple days up until the last day. I remember the very last day, but a half a dozen building inspectors for a half day inspection uh, looked at every nook and cranny of that building. And at the very end, the head building official pulled me aside in the parking garage and said to me, Mike, I know we were hard on you, but honestly, this is the best project that we've opened in this city. Amazing. (sighs) Finally, right? Finally, Mm. I felt some validation that, dude, we can actually do this. And so, yeah, I've gone through that many times. And then one other quick point is that that wasn't the only time, right? You go through that over and over and over again at every step of your journey. So yeah, it's a constant not feeling like I can actually solve the next problem, but you just kind of put the energy and effort into it despite how you feel. You have to believe in yourself and believe that you can get there. That's an amazing story. You are a very good communicator and Mm. I love the stories that you're telling. So if I work for you, you could motivate me to do just about anything. I sounds yeah. like so. I want to take it back to the the family owned side of things. And and at one point, you said you weren't, you knew one thing, and you didn't want to be part of the family business. Yeah, was that for the autonomy? Was there like why were you thinking that? And then what was the realization that you said that you had that kind of shifted you into a different mindset? Such a good question. I knew that probably for the rest of my life that people look at my story and would say, Mike, you're only where you're at because you had your, you know, my family business mm-hmm. as a starting point. And so I really didn't want that to be my history. I wanted to prove that I could do it out on my own, right? Mm-hmm. What I realized is that well, I'll tie in. So I talked about my dad dying at a relatively young age. Mm-hmm. And it really reminded me how short life really is. We only live about 5,000 weeks here on earth. And I often wow. ask myself the question, how do I want to spend the minutes I have here on earth? For me, it's not about leisure. It's not about money. It's not about sitting on some beach. You know, I could already do that if I wanted to. I could retire tomorrow. Mm-hmm. What I want to do with my life is that I want to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact on the world. And so when I started looking at it from that lens, how can I give back to this world in the short time I have here on earth? I realized that taking my small family business as a starting point would save me that five or 10 years to get to that point mm. so that I could have a bigger impact on society and the time I have here on earth. And so I said, my ego doesn't matter. Let's focus on impact. Mm. And just reframed the entire thing. Wow. So where was the business at, at that point? Like the head start that you were getting, if you want to look at it that way, like, what was the state of the business then? Yeah, we had a 
few dozen units. We had uh, maybe six or eight staff members. We, you know, we, all of our properties are actually here in Forest Lake, the ones that were originally built. And um, yeah, that's where we started. Okay. And so growing up, you had some, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you grew up knowing that your father was successful, knowing that the business was some type of success, right? And maybe like other people that you grew up with didn't have that experience. Like, did you see that type of difference early on? And that's kind of what you were running from because you wanted to be part of that like friend group, if you will. Like, I'm trying to understand like some of what framed up how you were thinking just so I can better understand that part of the development. Yeah, when I was young, you know, we were most of my growing up was sort of solidly middle class, very similar to everyone else in, in the world I was in. So I didn't feel any different. And in fact, when we were really young, when my dad lost, you know, my parents lost everything. My dad was mm-hmm. kidnapped in Peru. I mean, they they were really struggling. Like, can we get can we afford presents for the kids kind of thing? Yeah. But they shield, uh, shielded us from that as well. So I didn't really experience that. Although there's pictures of me in a, in cribs on construction sites. They put a piece of plywood over the top. <laughs> and uh, growing up, I suppose the thing I, that was very much a part of my life is they would bring me on the sites. I'd be picking up nails, sweeping floors, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, which today I really value because that helped give me the knowledge and experience that I needed. But yeah, it was, it felt very normal, very average. I think for me, I always knew I wanted to do something big. And so even in like junior high school, we, uh, I created this group of kids. There was like a hundred of us and we were doing special effects for like, would be like movies. Now we weren't working in actual movies, but the effects we were doing were crazy for the time and for our age. So we actually got a small studio. We built a, like sets. We'd have like pirate ships, blue screens. We had a costume department. We had a team of 3D animators. We actually built out like, uh, there was a scene with a skyscraper and, and helicopters crashing in. And like the main character is like dodging these hot helicopters crashing around. We got a bunch of, um, volunteers to come on so we did a medieval film as well a bunch of volunteers to come on location with us was actually in stillwater like run down this giant hill like have this giant like a fight scene with medieval stuff it was uh yeah it was that sort of thing that we would pull together and do and it was crazy because you know i didn't know how to animate (laughs) so one of my good friends who's kind of my right hand man him and i would stay up like all night long reading the the manual for how to 3D animate. It was this giant book because mm-hmm. you know, the internet wasn't much at the time. There's certainly no videos on how to do it. <laughs> we read the book. And then the next morning we'd have a bunch of kids, these like junior hires come in and we'd be teaching them what we learned about 3D animation the night before. <laughs> it was just that just like that. So, so you're good at, you, so you were a leader at a young age. You said junior high? Like you're That's doing where it started, like, yeah. Wow. So you had that type of, pull at ability to communicate with people to get them moving in a direction. I had no idea how to lead <laughs> at that age, but I Yet just people knew followed. I wanted to do something cool and a bunch of people like wanted to do it with me. So we all just did cool stuff. <laughs> a 
feel like you're downplaying that a little bit. Maybe maybe I'm wrong, but well, I actually uh, remember at, <laughs> when I was young being invited to speak about leadership to it was like a university class where they brought in it was a class devoted to learning about leadership and they brought in a variety of leaders at different stages and i remember in that class telling them everything i knew about leadership and here i, I thought i knew a thing or two because mm-hmm. i led these teams but looking back from what i know today <laughs> and looking at my answers back then i knew nothing like my answer was <laughs> like yeah i do something cool and then people yeah they just come beside me and we start doing mm-hmm. stuff cool right like Oh, there's so much more to it than that. <laughs> I think that's a that's a good kind of litmus test to see like if you're growing overall. Like looking yeah. back and like if you are believing the same thing you believed at that point and you're like, Yep, that was a great idea, well then the amount of progress you're showing maybe isn't that much. Fascinating. So with where you're at right now, beginning of twenty twenty four, like what are your goals? for Norhart in 2024 and then moving forward. Yeah, so I mean, long-term, our long-term dream over the next decade is to reach 192,000 units under management with a 60,000 unit per year construction pace. At that point, we're producing enough units in certain markets that we're having an impact on the supply and demand balance for housing. And once we start mm. doing that, providing enough supply to a given market that's when you'll see prices start coming down naturally not just for our own residents but for everyone within those markets so that's the long-term dream that's how we actually solve housing affordability in the middle term we need to be building up that capacity and elon musk talks about how it's hard to produce a car but it is 10 to 100 to a thousand times harder to build the system that builds that car and oh my gosh it's mm. so incredibly true. You can look at the scars all over me. <laughs> and then the short-term realm is the world of interest rates, right? Interest rates have risen. Bank loan proceeds have gone down. And so now we have to pivot. We built this entire company valued at something like $240 million today, entirely on our own. Like I own, my wife owned pretty much all of it. And, uh, That is changing now. We're now allowing investors into what we're doing. But now I've got to learn the skill set of finding and raising money from investors. And so one of those things that we're doing is uh, something called Norhart Invest. It actually allows anyone to invest in what we're doing. And we offer fixed rates of return that are quite good. Between You can lock your money up between six months and five years. And that capital is used to help us bridge that gap between what the bank will offer and what we need for projects to make them happen. And uh, that will enable that growth again. So that's one way we're raising capital. And we're also raising capital directly from very large institutions writing very, very large checks right now. Seems like you just find like you hit a problem and then like you just creatively solve it. You're like, okay, not a problem. Let's think outside the box. Let's expand how we're viewing this. And and then find a way, right? That is exactly right. If people want to know what it's like growing a business like this, every step of the way, you get something new and you get a punch to the gut. And it feels like it's going to wipe you out, like it's the hardest thing you've ever dealt with. You've never experienced a challenge this bad before. And now you're just racing and stress and sleepless nights to figure out some way to solve that problem. 
And then you get by it. And then the next thing comes and punches you in the gut and you do it all over again, again and again and again. But what's amazing is every step, that next challenge is your newest, biggest, hardest challenge. But then you look back like five challenges ago and you're like, dude, I don't know why that was even like a twinkle of a challenge. Like that was easy. But emotionally, it takes a toll. It's incredibly stressful because you're always pushing yourself to the extreme to solve just the the next just barely solvable problem on your radar. Wow. So you said 192,000 units in different markets. Which specific markets are those? Do you have like kind of zeroed in? Is there a a core area where you see the need, just proximity or availability to the development opportunities? Like what's the thought process behind those, those geographies that you're looking at? Yeah, so we're... Uh, primarily in Minnesota right now, even though we have some manufacturing with capability in Wisconsin, uh, we are looking at Texas as sort of the next place we're looking to expand yeah. into. And the primary reason for that, well, a, it's a good market, it's a growing market, but the bigger thing for us is we're thinking about production. And so if you look at Texas, there is three, four major cities all within about three hours of driving from each other. Tremendous amount of uh, population there, a lot of room for growth where we don't need to expand a lot of production capabilities all across the country. The other interesting thing we're looking at is moving some production capabilities outside the United States and delivering some components of those products into the United States. And so Texas gives us closer proximity to Mexico. So yeah, it's a good market. And uh, we're really thinking about the production side and driving down those costs. It's amazing. So you're thinking such a macro scale with that type of thought process. But then early on, we were talking down to the micro five hours of a project and being able to kind of flip from this side to like the macro economy down to the microeconomics of the entire process. That's a really unique muscle to have to exercise. Is there some type of practice that helps you be able to do that? You know, in um, in college, I remember, uh, so oftentimes, so at the University of Minnesota where I went, I graduated summa cum laude honors, and, uh, but I would, um, I would take, tw- so the normal full load was 16 credits. The maximum you were allowed to take was 20 credits. It's special mm-hmm. approval to go beyond that. I would often do 21 credits plus a full-time job, but the most intense time that I ever, I want to see how far I could push myself. And for half a semester, I took uh, the equivalent of 27 credits. And I took the hardest classes I possibly could find. The hardest one was honors abstract algebra. And the University of Minnesota has got a really strong math program. Mm -hmm. And the people in that program were literally like geniuses. This was a graduate level, honors level math course that didn't deal in numbers, that didn't deal in letters. It was entirely proofs and I could barely make it by, but it just putting myself in those situations that really incredibly stretched me. That's what I morbidly enjoy. It's, it's incredibly stressful, but that's what gives me some of these skill sets that I need to like kind of go up and down the ladder and seeing these different things. And, you know, I, uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, I shoot for about 20 hours of learning per week. 
in my normal work week is something like 70, 80 hours on a normal week. It gets to 100 plus when it gets bad. But 20 hours of education a week, how in the world do you fit that in? Pretty easy. Under drive, put an audio book, put in a podcast. During my workout, I run 15 miles every Sunday. It gives me some time to listen to some more uh, podcasts and things. At night, as I'm like in my relaxing time, I'm often watching documentaries so I can learn and see like and discover new things. And then uh, as I'm falling asleep, I pull up YouTube. It is shocking how much you can learn on YouTube, oh, yeah. right? So I often I'm learning, trying to learn the skill sets of the area that I am now exposing myself to so that I can become strong or proficient enough mm. in that area so I can have a meaningful insight, conversation, and dialogue with the people I'm working in with that part of the business. Being able to speak their language. What's the newest thing you've started to learn? Uh, so the newest thing that I'm working a lot on right now is marketing in particular. Mm. So we're raising money with Nord Invest. We got a great strong offering. We got a great set of initial investors, got a good base of money. But how do you scale that up? And so in theory, you can put more marketing dollars into those advertising. So mm -hmm. this is like Facebook, Instagram, Google, uh, elsewhere to drive traffic to Norton Invest. Once you get them there, there is a sales process, an investment process that they go through to exactly. get comfortable with you. But how do you build up that system to generate the rate of return, the ROAS that you need to see in order for the cost of capital to be low enough? And it sounds you know, fairly simple on the surface, put an ad up, talk to some investors, you're good to go. <sighs> to do it well, to do it at a mm -hmm. world-class level to really drive down those costs, there is so many details. And so, yeah, I'm taking a lot of classes in marketing, a lot of classes in sales, and then just getting in the weeds, we're building up the systems. There's a lot of automation and infrastructure. There's AI involved. Mm -hmm. it is, uh, it's pretty cool and a lot of fun. Yeah. Marketing is something that I'm super passionate about. Yes. I go down so many different rabbit holes to get to like the super granular side of things. And then it's like, once I get to the most granular part of a process, then something clicks and then I kind of zoom back out into the big picture. I see a lot of, or I'm hearing a lot of similarities in kind of how you learn and how I go about learning. So there's a, there's an immense amount of focus on your time then and the value of your time. How do you think about your week? Like when you're going into a week, do you have some type of triage where you look through and prioritize or is it structured weeks ahead of time? Like what's your process there? Cause you're obviously really efficient with your time. You slid, I, I run 15 miles every Sunday in there somehow and just like kept on going. So I just want, I'm trying to understand like how your brain works a little bit because you like you're a top performer in more than one area from from what you're saying. Yeah, it's such a great question. And in fact, I think my team calculated once for me just the the opportunity cost of my time. It was something like ten thousand dollars an hour. It was insane. One of the most important things I have found is creating the right set of habits because you only have so much time in your brain to actively think about what you're doing. So you got to set a baseline of, of habits. So you just don't even think about those activities. You just know they're the right activities for you to do. So basic habits for me, 
I go to bed at the same time every night, unless something really bad is happening. Wake up at the same time every morning. I do my you know weight training workouts. I do my cardio, you know, the 15 mile run every Sunday. I know what time it is, right? Like, I don't even have to think about it. It's like just my body mm-hmm. naturally gets out there and starts running. And so, you know, I'm home at the same time every night. And I it's important to me because I have got to spend time with my kids and putting them to bed. And then uh, my my daughter loves to make me up at five in the morning and Saturday and Sunday to play a Super Mario Wonder with me and we get to goof off. Like that time is really important. So my wife doesn't always love my habits because like it's mm. kind of regimented. Oh, yeah. um, but but that helps me a lot because then I can then hang the rest of my activities on top of those habits. And then I really think about what is the what's the levers in the business that if I spend time on will have the biggest impact helping us improve and go where we need to go. And so right now it's on capital raising. So that's where I'm spending a lot of my time. But so that's probably half of my quote unquote free time. The other half of the free time is in managerial stuff. So it's the Mm. uh, team meetings, the one-on-ones, the coaching, the orientations. I do orientations Mm. because it's really important to build that connection with your team when you start. So it's, it's stuff like that that kind of fills up the remaining part. And then you're a dad and a husband, uh, like that's, that's what you're doing. And probably if you're anything like myself, like that's why you do everything else that mm-hmm. you're doing. So you, I know your daughter has a YouTube channel also that isn't just a couple videos here. Like actually, like you don't do anything like a little bit, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. So my daughter one day, just started bugging me over and over again. <laughs> well, weeks, but dad, I got to start a YouTube channel. Dad, I got to start. You know, you know, I'm not I'm falling behind, dad. I need a, I need a <laughs> She's four. <laughs> wow. Uh, and um, so she wore me down. I said, fine, we'll do one. We'll do one video. We did a video. She wanted to do the gummy food versus real food challenge. And it was a lot of fun. And then we started just doing videos, right? And um, one of my favorites, she's coming up with these crazy ideas, but one of my favorites was, uh, we call it the candy truck video, where we filled a dump truck full of candy and then drove around Forest Lake, giving it out to kids in the neighborhood. And we ended up donating the remainder of it. Yeah, and, and one of the, there's a video that's gotten just a tremendous amount of views. It's so simple. We just called up the, the police department and said, Hey, would you be willing to do a video with us? Would you be willing to pull Claire and Emma, our two-year-old, over? Because they have this like little toy car. So they pull her over and give her a speeding ticket. (laughs) And it's a short one-minute video and it's just exploded. But uh, yeah, it's been fun to see that grow and and fun to see her be so passionate about it. That's amazing. I mean, sounds like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree with your daughter. She's getting after it, four years old, trying to... Do her own thing, find her her own path. Maybe a little bit like how you're feeling. Do you think you'll have, yeah. that they'll ever uh, want to be part of the family business? Is that something you see in the future of Norhart? Or is that not even That's part of the such, thought process yet? Such an interesting question. I want to mention one thing first, though. And that is that what's interesting is there's a whole new perspective now I'm having of being a dad of a kid who's trying to do something cool. And that is, you know, I'm on the news fairly often or whatever. And 
it's a little nerve wracking to like get to a point of being on LA news or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And getting the skill set to do that. But for some of the videos, the news is now, you know, reached out to Claire and actually had to clear on the news. We were on a radio. We actually went to the radio station not that long ago and sat down and I had way, way, way more anxiety being a dad of a kid behind the radio than I ever did being on the radio. And uh, because at one point she's super excited and the next point she's like, I don't want to do it. I'm like, God, she's only four. Like, how do I manage this so that she can actually do a good job being on the radio? It was, it was terrifying. But yeah, would she ever be interested in doing this? I don't know. And one thing I never want is I don't want the business to suffer if by putting your family into that business. Yeah. You know, it's often said that the first generation builds it, the second generation maintains it, and the last generation destroys it. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that to be our story. But at the same time, I'm really wrestling with the fact that, like, when I grew up, I was on the sites, right? I had to live there because that's the only place. There was no child care. (laughs) They had me out there. Like, I'm in a much different financial position than my parents were. And as a result, like, am I creating an environment that my daughter doesn't get to learn that same challenge, right? She's not Mm. on construction sites. It's illegal for me to bring her on a construction site. (laughs) Um, And so I'm nervous about that because she's not getting that same experience. So I wrestle with it. Yeah, it's it's similar. So I see some parallels. I took over my father-in-law's pest control business and, and now I have children of my own. My my son's six, my daughter turns four, and then I got another daughter who's one. And I have people ask me that all the time. Like it's, well, are you teaching them to take over the family business? And I'm like, I'm just trying to teach them how to human right now. Like they need Uh to know how to be able to navigate the world. And for me, like it really has to be their choice, their decision. Mm -hmm. I feel like, like I would battle with my parents a lot as a, developing young man and i would i never liked something being forced on me and, and that yeah. i would always like do the opposite which was made my parents job really easy and that was a little <laughs> sarcasm there yeah. um so <laughs> what i like i'm trying to stay as far away from forcing a direction and really just letting them see what i do and uh, and then listening to like what they care about what they like like if i force my son to want to be part of abracadabra and he hates it mm. like is that going to make me happy no. no like that's not what i want for my children and it's just such a it's a dynamic thought because as soon as it's like the next generation you can't as easily separate emotion from that thought process now which we try so hard to do in business so whenever i talk to somebody who's in a, the second generation of a family business I really try to learn as much from them as I can. I've learned a ton from you in this time. We're going on the end point for our conversation here. Is there anything else you want to say to anyone listening to the Homegrown Hustle? You got a lot going on, so I want to make sure you get the opportunity to get your message out there and we can bring some value here. Yeah. Uh, So we talked a little bit about the investment opportunity. If you have a chance, visit norhart.com. That's N O R. H-A-R-T.com. Click on invest and learn a lot more about how you can earn great rates of return. And then the second thing is we have our own podcast called Zero the Unicorn. It's about the journey of small businesses growing to billion 
$1,000 scale. And one of my favorite guests was Michael Uslan, who's the originator and executive producer of Batman. And it took him, he was able to buy the movie rights to Batman when he was fairly young by pulling some investors together. And it took him 10 years, 10 years of pleading with people, begging, getting doors slammed in his face, people telling him he can't make a dark and serious superhero movie. But he kept with it that whole time. And in doing so, he he created a genre, the superhero movies that we see today. And his story is so inspirational. But we have incredible guests, billionaires and, and amazing people that come on that show. Big so, thinkers, you know, right? That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. I'm going to check it out for sure. Are there any social media channels, anything like that, that people can find you on? Yeah, just check out Zero to Unicorn, Norhart, and then if you want to see my personal accounts, it's simply Mike. Awesome. Thanks again, Mike. Really appreciate you coming on Homegrown Hustle. Oh, almost forgot one more thing before I let you go. If you had to define the word hustle for, for us in terms of business, how would you define that word? It means repeatedly picking yourself back up after getting punched in the gut over and over and over again. It is a huge challenge to make anything actually happen and become successful and giving the dedication and drive it takes to make that happen is to me hustling. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks again for joining us on Homegrown Hustle. Our local business community thrives because of the brilliant leaders right here in our backyard. And it's been an absolute privilege to provide them with a platform to share their invaluable expertise. Stay tuned for more insight, wisdom, and inspiration from our local business champions. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Together, we'll continue to nurture and expand our homegrown success stories. Matt Eichmann signing off till our next insightful episode.